The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And today, the next passage we come to is Acts 22.30 through 23.35. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow. And so they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush, ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. 
So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, every word we find written in this passage is a priceless treasure because it is ultimately your self-revelation. Thank you that we don't have to guess about who you are or how we can know you or how we can live in the realm of your blessing. Instead, you have already told us in your word. So help us to understand everything we need to understand and be changed in every way in which we need to be changed through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Many of us begin our adult lives with a basic idea of what we want our lives to look like. We envision ourselves doing certain things and achieving certain things and enjoying certain things. Yet life often has a way of not turning out the way we think or uh, the way even that we want it to turn out. Uh, Sometimes life, in fact, isn't at all what we want it to be. Uh, Several years ago, there was a couple that Becky and I knew in the church that we were attending at the time named Scott and Julie. And uh, Scott and Julie had a wonderful life. I mean, they had a great family, great, you know, kids, great job, uh, plenty of money. They were both pretty attractive. Scott had played Division I college football. I think he was a quarterback. And then Julie was a frequent soloist in the church. So, you know, pretty much the all-American family. Right? And I believe they were also very godly as well. But then, tragedy struck. Out of nowhere, Julie collapsed and was taken to a nearby hospital, which then sent her by helicopter to a larger hospital. But before she could get to that larger hospital, Julie died. They later determined that a certain form of meningitis had caused her death within hours of being infected. And uh, just like that, Julie's husband, Scott, was without a wife and her five children, uh, the youngest of whom was under one year old, I believe, were suddenly without a mother. Now, of course, that's a very dramatic example of things not going the way we think or the way we want, but those kinds of things do happen at times. And, of course, there are also many other extremely difficult things that we can face, such as, perhaps, an injury that leaves us permanently impaired or not meeting that special someone whom we desire to marry or maybe meeting a person that we think is that special someone but then experiencing the pain of a divorce or perhaps not being able to have kids even though we deeply desire them. 
or having our hearts set on a certain career that doesn't end up working out. So there are, these are all extremely difficult things. And then, of course, there are many other kinds of difficulties that aren't quite on that level, but are nonetheless very hard to get through. Maybe you don't get into a college that you were hoping to get into, or a romantic relationship with a particular person doesn't work out, or you lose your job unexpectedly, or maybe you encounter financial difficulties for some other reason, or maybe health issues come up that are really tough to get through. So there are many different things, so many things in life that can bring hardship, heartache, and disappointment, oftentimes seemingly out of nowhere. And so how can we respond to these trials in a healthy and biblical way? How do we get through them? Well, we discover that this morning from this passage of Scripture, Acts 22, 30, verses, uh, and then through the end of chapter 23. Now, to remind you of the context here, the Apostle Paul has been falsely accused by certain malicious Jews of conduct that violates the Old Testament law. And these Jews managed to stir up the crowds that were at the temple in Jerusalem and lead the crowds to begin savagely beating Paul. And they would have killed him, but thankfully the commander of the Roman soldiers at Jerusalem, known as a tribune, hears about what's happening and quickly puts a stop to it. He then arrests Paul and takes him into custody and starts to bring him back into the barracks there. But as Paul's being led away, he asks the tribune for permission to speak to the crowd, the very crowd that had just tried to kill him. So the tribune agrees, and Paul tries to explain to this Jewish crowd about how Jesus had changed his life and had commissioned him as a herald of the gospel to the world. But in the middle of Paul's defense... He's shouted down by the hostile crowd and has to be brought by the Roman soldiers back into the barracks. The story then picks up in Acts 22.30, where it says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, this Jewish council was known as the Sanhedrin, and was granted a certain measure of governing authority by the Romans. The Romans were the ones who were really in charge, but they gave the Sanhedrin some degree of self-governance. And the tribune here doesn't know what in the world is going on with Paul and why everybody's so upset with him. And so the tribune brings Paul before the Sanhedrin so that they, perhaps, can get to the bottom of things. And in verses 1 through 5 of the next chapter, chapter 23... Paul has some pretty tense interactions with the Sanhedrin, and things seem to be going rather poorly. But then he gets an idea. Verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. That I am on trial. See, there was this, this intense debate between the two Jewish sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, about whether or not there would be a resurrection of the dead 
in the future and an afterlife. And so Paul, being the clever guy that he is, decides to try to pit these two groups against each other. Uh, Today it would be kind of like being called maybe before uh, a congressional hearing with, uh, you know, before the United States Congress with both Democrats and Republicans in attendance and saying something like, you know, it is with respect to gun control that I'm on trial today. Or it is with respect to immigration policy that I'm on trial today. I mean, chaos would ensue, right? And that's pretty much what Paul does here when he says it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. So that was a hot-button issue of the day. And Paul's claim is technically true, since it is indeed because of the resurrection of the dead that he's on trial, specifically the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And Paul's attempt at pitting the Pharisees and Sadducees against each other works pretty well for him. The two groups start arguing with each other, and violence even breaks out. I mean, physical violence. So, you thought American politics was wild, right? I mean, this is, I mean, at least people aren't getting in fistfights who are actual United States Congress people, right? But here, apparently, they were. And it actually intensifies even further. Verses 12 through 15 tell us this. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when 40 people take an oath not to eat or drink until they kill you, you might say that things have gotten rather serious. It's not a good day. Now, fortunately, in God's providence, Paul's nephew hears about this plot and is able to warn the tribune. The tribune then sends Paul off in the middle of the night under heavy guard 65 miles away to the city of Caesarea, which was the regional capital, where Paul was transferred into the custody of Felix, the governor. So, needless to say, things aren't at all going the way Paul had envisioned. Paul's plans were turned upside down. Because remember that Paul had traveled a long way in order to engage in ministry in Jerusalem. And he hoped after that to minister in other areas, specifically Rome. Back in Acts 19.21, we read as follows. Now, after these events, some things that had taken place in Ephesus, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Also, in Paul's letter to the Roman church, which he wrote a few months before his imprisonment, he tells them in Romans 15, 23 and 24, how he's longed for many years to come to them and hopes to do so after he visits Jerusalem. So Paul has a deep desire for ministry, both in Jerusalem and in Rome. 
I mean, it's heavy on his heart. And yet here he is sitting in a jail cell. I mean, just imagine how you would feel in that situation. Imagine the frustration that must have been building up within Paul. What in the world is God doing here? And yet tucked away in Acts 23, we find a verse that changes everything. Look with me at verse 11, which records what God says to Paul as he's sitting in there in Roman custody. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When God said that, I'm sure Paul must have been like, wait, did you just say Rome? Right? Did you say I'm going to testify in Rome? And so the very place where Paul yearned to go and the very place God was calling him to go is exactly where this unjust imprisonment was going to take him. And that's really what the whole rest of the book of Acts is about. Paul continues to be imprisoned unjustly and is bounced from one governing authority to another. But the whole time, he's actually on his way to Rome. Because eventually, as a Roman citizen, he's able to appeal his case to Caesar himself. And his appeal is granted. And so he's able to travel to Rome courtesy of the Roman government. And you better believe that Paul engages in ministry the whole time including the two years that he had to spend in Rome under house arrest while he was waiting to stand before Caesar. We're told in Acts 28, 30 and 31, that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So he was under house arrest, but he was still able to teach about Jesus without hindrance. Isn't that just like God? You know, to work in ways that we would never expect and to allow things in our lives that confuse us to no end and yet be accomplishing his will the whole time. And that's really the main idea of this entire passage and probably even of the rest of the book of Acts. God sovereignly orchestrates every detail of our lives to accomplish his perfect purposes. God sovereignly orchestrates every detail of our lives to accomplish his perfect purposes. Brothers and sisters, God has a purpose for every trial in our lives. He has a purpose for every disappointment. He has a purpose for every situation in which our lives don't go as we've planned or as we desire. And that purpose, as we see throughout Scripture, is His glory and our good. And our main passage in Acts 23 is a perfect example of that. So in light of what we see here in Acts 23, let me highlight five essential habits for responding to difficulties and disappointments in our lives in a biblical way. Five essential habits for responding to difficulties and disappointments in a biblical way. First, rest 
in God's power. Recognize that God's in complete control over our circumstances. No matter how chaotic those circumstances might seem to be from our limited perspective. Notice in verse 11, the matter-of-fact way in which God tells Paul he's going to bear witness in Rome. Uh, It says, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It's like he's saying, there's no question that you're going to Rome, just be sure to be faithful in testifying about me when you get there. It's presented as a done deal. Paul's going to Rome. We also see God's power in the way he sovereignly orchestrates Paul's nephew gaining knowledge about the plot against Paul. You understand, it was no accident that Paul's nephew came upon that information. God brought that about. He's the one who caused Paul's nephew to be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time in order to discover the plot and who then worked things out for him to get that information to the tribune in a timely manner. So there wasn't any aspect of this entire situation that was outside of God's sovereign control. See, God has the power not only to make plans, but also to see them accomplished. Without fail, 100% of the time. He has all power. As he says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Also, Ephesians 1.11 describes God as him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things, or even most things, but all things. So regardless of what we're going through, we can rest in God's power with the confidence that he's in control. And get this, because God's in control, we don't have to be. And that idea is admittedly difficult for a lot of us to embrace because we have uh, what we might call control issues. I'll be the first to admit that I do have some control issues that extend to several parts of my life. Uh, For example, I don't particularly enjoy riding in a vehicle with someone else driving, right? I would much prefer to be the one to be driving the vehicle so that I can be in control, Even if the other person's a much more experienced and cautious driver than me, I still prefer to be in control. It's not really rational. That's just the way I am. And it seems that most of us, if not all of us, have similar control issues with God. It's often really tough to let God be God over our lives. And yet the Bible teaches that we can trust God and rest in his power, again, with the confidence that because God is in control, we don't have to be. In addition, not only can we rest in God's power, but we can also trust in God's wisdom. 
That's the second essential habit for responding to difficulties and disappointments in our lives. Trust in God's wisdom. You see, Paul had plans, but God had better ones. Paul's plan was to go to Rome in order to bear witness about Jesus to the general population. And God's like, yeah, you're going to do that. But in addition to bearing witness about me to the general population, I'm going to put you in front of some of the most powerful and influential people in the entire empire so that you can bear witness to them as well. I'm going to put you in front of this governor and that governor and even Caesar himself so that they can hear the gospel. And even though we don't have any indication that Caesar ever embraced the gospel, we do know that some of those in his household did. In Philippians 4.22, Paul writes to the church in Philippi while he's imprisoned in Rome. So he's writing this from a jail cell. He says, all the saints, that is Christians, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So there were apparently people in Caesar's own household who embraced the gospel and who were, I imagine, able to use their considerable influence in wonderful ways for the kingdom of God. Guys, God knew exactly what he was doing through Paul's imprisonment. I'm reminded of Romans 11, 33 and 34, where Paul exclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So no matter what you're going through or what situation you're in, remember that God is infinitely wise. I appreciate the way J.I. Packer describes, uh, actually defines God's wisdom. He says that for God to be wise means that he's always able to determine both the best ends and the best means to those ends. In other words, God has a perfect understanding of the absolute best goals to pursue and the absolute best ways of achieving those goals. He's perfectly and infinitely wise. So in Acts 23, God could have broken Paul out of jail, right? He had done so in the past, and he could have very easily done that again. And yet God had a better plan. And friends, it's the same in our lives, Regardless of what you're going through, God has a plan. And his plans are always better than our plans. Now, one thing that often makes things especially difficult for us is that we don't know, usually we don't know the details of God's plans or how they all fit together. God usually doesn't do for us what he does for Paul in verse 11 and clue us in on what he's doing. And that's often difficult for us because we desperately want to know what he's doing. And J.R. Packer uses a great illustration in um, the same book I referenced earlier, Knowing God. He says that if you stand at the end of a platform at York Station in England, 
Uh, you can watch a constant succession of train movements that, if you're a railway enthusiast, will greatly fascinate you. But you'll only be able to form a very rough and general idea of the overall plan and system according to which all of these movements are happening. However, if you're privileged enough to be taken by one of the railway administrators to the highly complex electrical signal box located between platforms 7 and 8, you'll see on the longest wall a diagram of the entire track layout for five miles on either side of the station. Now, side note here, today I'm sure it's probably all on a computer system. I understand Packer wrote this 50 years ago. So he says, you'll, you'll see this diagram of the entire track layout for that area with little glowing lights that are either moving or stationary on the different tracks to represent at a glance exactly where each train is located at that moment in time. You can see some trains stopping in order to let other trains through and this train doing this so that this other train can do that. And basically the total picture of how everything's working together. And the purposes of all the individual train movements that normal passengers on the trains would have no way of understanding now become very plain as you're standing there in that room. And that's what we want in our lives, isn't it? Like we want to see that electrical signal box. Yet that's not something that God usually allows. In his infinite wisdom, God tests and refines our faith by not letting us into that room so that we can learn to trust him. And that's what we have to do. We have to trust his wisdom. Then the third habit we need to develop is to recognize God's involvement. We have to recognize God's involvement in whatever situation we're going through. You know, so often we have the, a tendency to think like functional deists, basically, as if things are just kind of happening without God necessarily causing them or being involved with them. Of course, we never say that out loud, but that can be our unspoken assumption at times. And yet the Bible is very clear that God is intimately involved with every aspect of every event of our lives. Here in Acts 23, verse 11 is like God's reminder to Paul of that reality. It's like God saying, you know, hey, Paul, don't forget that I'm doing things here. I'm at work. There are purposes here that I'm accomplishing. And that's a reality that we all have to grow to recognize more and more. Part of growing in our knowledge of God consists in growing to see God's hand in every detail of every event in our lives. Uh, I appreciate the way John Piper describes this in his book entitled Providence. He talks about living in a God-entranced world and seeing reality differently and recognizing God, that God's at work everywhere. Uh, for example, he says, I used to look at sunrises when I was jogging and think that God has created a beautiful world. Then it became less general and more specific, more personal. I said, every morning 
God paints a different sunrise. He never gets tired of doing it again and again. But then it struck me. No, he doesn't do it again and again. He never stops doing it. The sun is always rising somewhere in the world. God guides the sun 24 hours every day and paints sunrises at every moment, century after century, without one second of respite, and never grows weary or less thrilled with the work of his hands. Even when cloud cover keeps man from seeing it, God is painting spectacular sunrises above And just as God never stops or takes a break from creating beautiful sunrises, friends, God never stops or takes a break from orchestrating every detail of every event of our lives. He's intimately involved in it all. Then a fourth habit for us to develop is to surrender to God's purposes. Perhaps one reason why we often have such a difficult time with our circumstances is because our will for our lives is, to some degree, different than God's will for our lives. We want lives that are stress-free, pain-free, and trouble-free, lives of ease and comfort, yet God's will for us is bigger than that, and even better, actually. In a manner of speaking, we might say that God's more concerned about our holiness than he is about our temporal happiness, because he knows that real and eternal happiness is attained through holiness, and holiness, in turn, is attained through trials. And so trials lead to holiness, and holiness leads to true happiness. That's God's plan. In addition to that, God also desires to use us in a meaningful way for the spread of the gospel. And being involved in the spread of the gospel, I'll just say, usually doesn't translate into a life of ease and comfort. I mean, just Look at the Apostle Paul sitting there in that jail cell in Acts 23 as exhibit A. So responding to trials in our lives in a biblical way means surrendering to God's purposes rather than our own. What we need is for our will to be conformed to God's will and for our agenda to be altered so it's in line with His agenda. I just think that until we surrender to God in that way, our circumstances will probably be twice as difficult as they otherwise would be. And then a final habit for us to develop is to remember God's goodness. So we need to rest in God's power, trust in God's wisdom, recognize God's involvement, surrender to God's purposes, and now remember God's goodness. Ever since Satan convinced Eve to eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, we've been doubting the goodness of God. 
And that's particularly problematic because none of the rest of the things we've talked about this morning matter if God isn't good. It doesn't matter if God's powerful, wise, involved, or purposeful if he's not also good. And if we can't trust his intentions. In fact, a God who had all these other qualities without also being good would be our worst nightmare. I mean, can you imagine? He would be the worst tyrant who's ever existed, and there'd be no end to his tyranny. Yet, thankfully, we have every indication that we could ever ask for that God isn't just good, but is abundantly good. We see his goodness, for example, in creating this world, which, even in its fallen condition, is exquisitely beautiful and contains so many enjoyments. I mean, just think about them. God, God gave us these things called taste buds so that we could taste delicious foods. He didn't have to do that. We could just be eating grass all the time. God gave us a nose so that we can smell wonderful fragrances, right? And you could go on and on literally for hours thinking about all of the aspects. We can, we can see in color instead of black and white. So many ways in which God has been good to us simply in the creation of this world. And yet the ultimate example of God's goodness is seen not in creation, the creation of the world, but rather in the redemption of the world. In his goodness, God sent his own son, Jesus, to redeem all of creation from its brokenness and us from our sin. Jesus died on the cross in order to purchase our redemption. Our sins deserved and even demanded God's judgment. But Jesus voluntarily took that judgment on himself when he died on the cross. He, he suffered the full force of that judgment, thereby satisfying the righteous indignation of God the Father against sin. And so anytime we're maybe tempted to doubt the goodness of God, we just need to look at the cross. Because it's at the cross where all of the doubts that we would otherwise have about God's goodness, they just melt away. And we see undeniable evidence that God loves us and that he's for us, not against us. And this gospel message of who Jesus is and what he's done is also the greatest example there is of God sovereignly working in the most unexpected ways to accomplish his purposes. You know, that we've said that the main thrust of Acts 23 is that God sovereignly orchestrates every detail of our lives to accomplish his perfect purposes, and that he often does so in the ways we least expect. Well, the ultimate example of that is the gospel itself. Nobody expected God to work in the way he did to rescue his people. The Jews certainly didn't expect it, even though it had been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. They simply didn't have a mental category for a suffering Messiah. That's why most of them rejected Jesus 
And even Jesus' own disciples didn't really get it until after the resurrection. Jesus even spelled it out for them on numerous occasions during the time he spent with them before going to the cross. But they just couldn't wrap their minds around it. That's why during the three days between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, his disciples were absolutely devastated. Because in their minds, all hope had just been lost. They thought that it was basically all over. Yet God knew exactly what he was doing in sending Jesus to the cross. As we now understand, what initially appeared to be the ultimate defeat actually turned out to be the ultimate victory. And what initially appeared to to be the worst thing that could ever happen actually turned out to be the best thing that could ever happen. That's the way God works. He works in ways we'd least expect to accomplish his perfect purposes. We see it in the gospel. We see it with Paul in Acts 23. And we're called to believe it in the midst of all of the difficulties and disappointments that we face in our lives.